This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Hello, everybody. We just had a really special interview with our young brother, William Burleson. You're about to hear part one of this conversation. In this first segment, you'll hear about William's first experience with alcohol early in high school, which escalated into a series of mental health struggles and eventual involuntary hospitalization. If you're a parent of a high school-aged kid or you are in high school, we hope you will take something away from William's powerful story. As a trigger warning for this episode, we will be discussing suicidal ideation, addiction, and other sensitive subjects. If you or a loved one are experiencing suicidal thoughts, please do not hesitate to reach out to the new suicide hotline, 988. William Burleson, welcome to Champagne Problems. Thank you. Happy to be here. We are very happy to have you on. We thank you for coming on and telling your story. We are excited to do this, and man, I think this is going to save some lives here. It's going to be very powerful. That's the goal. That is the goal. That is the goal. All right, brother. So let's start. Let's start with a little background. Let's let our listeners know who you are, um, where are you from, that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm from Charlotte, born in Charlotte, all my life, Queen City. Um, went to Charlotte Latin, um, K through 12. Boo. Um, <laughs> played lacrosse and basketball in middle school, um, and then got distracted by things in high school, so I quit those. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, had a great group of friends at Latin the whole the whole time. Um, shout out to them; they've always been there for me um, in a really impactful way. Nice. Um, have three sisters. Um, love them to death. And my parents are the best. Um, mom and dad always have been on my team. Made a very comfortable environment to ask for help um, when I did go through that bad time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just been a blessing to be here, and I'm excited to get going. Let's go to the high school years, man. Let's yeah. jump into, I mean, let's get into the depth of it. When was your first experience uh, drinking? Uh, so for most of my buddies, it came freshman year. Uh, it was a stealing some Bud Lights from Dad's fridge, crossing your fingers, he won't find out. <laughs> yeah. um, but for me, it actually came sophomore year. It was, I remember it was very calculated. There was a party and upperclassmen, a junior or senior, a brother of one of our friends was going to supply the booze. Um, mm-hmm. uh, just a textbook story. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because everyone had to say the amount they were going to have because it was calculated of how many cases should we buy Bud Light. Mm. So I say, all right, first time drinking, I'm just going to have one. I mean, <laughs> one beer. Just one beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, ah, two cases. I, I, I'm just going to have one beer, and everyone else was saying four and five. And I was on my high horse saying, I'm just going to have one. <laughs> so I get to the party, and it was at my girlfriend's house at the time. And I get there, and, you know, I go in a little cooler. I grab the one beer, finish it at rapid speed. <laughs> I mean, I already drank my one beer. What's the deal, guys? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. What do we do now? What's, what's the deal? And they're playing beer pong, a classic high school game. <laughs> You're not getting any of mine. <laughs> yeah. And so there's leftover beer in the beer pong games after the games are finished for the losing side. There you go. So I'm like a night hawk <laughs> rolling around the table with one of my buddies, one of the, my other friends who just said he just have one. And whenever a beer pong game's in, we'd swip in and steal the like quarter filled solo cups of Bud Light. <laughs> and the balls have been in. Yeah, the, the balls have been in, dropped on the floor, dirty <laughs> fingers going in there. Uh, disgusting. And we go in and we're watching it like a hawk, and we just do that the whole night. And I am circling the table the whole night. And that's all I remember from yeah, that I night. Mm-hmm. That I mean, that's scene. the textbook. I don't really remember my first time drinking because. It ended with me drinking too much. Not remembering. Having way more than my one Bud Light I was supposed to have. Um, And that pattern kind of continued for um, the rest of sophomore year. It was difficult to detect me drinking too much or drinking excessively because all my buddies were doing the exact same thing. Yeah. And at that time in my life, I was just fitting in with the crowd. Um. So sophomore year comes, the margins on upperclassmen buying booze for you are incredibly high. <laughs> a 24-pack of Bud Light will cost you a good 75 bucks. <laughs> yeah. And what are we going to do? Yeah. What are we going to like? Come okay, up with okay. it. Yeah. 
so I'm in the car. I'm with some of my friends. We need a way to find booze. This is sophomore year. Uh-huh. On the ladder in right before COVID. Who looks the oldest? Okay, William looks the oldest. Uh-huh. I come up with a magnificent idea. Poise. Let's go to Walmart. Let's buy me a pair of scrubs. Ooh, so I look like a doctor. doctor. So I look like a doctor. Wow. Classic. I mean, <laughs> I thought it was genius. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, I go in. I get these scrubs. I slick my hair back, steal my dad's nice watch, <laughs> slap that on my wrist. And I'm like, okay. Oh shoulders God. up, shoulders down. I walk into the gas station right near my house. Like a stroll, like I've just been on residency for the past twelve hours. I'm like have the ta- uh, like the t- tired limp. It's like, oh, what a long day. And I said a line like that. Some I was blood like, on his scrubs. Like, oh. I was like, oh, it's been such a long day. And I go up there, and the guy goes ID, and I reach into my scrubs pocket and do the. Oh, I left it in the emergency. Oh no! I left it in the ER. In the, oh, in the ER. This, <laughs> this happens every day. Oh, I left my wallet in the ER again. He go. He looks at me, and I swear that guy knew. But he let me have the beer. Oh, he let me have it. So I walk out, and you see my friends in the car listening to their Lil Wayne. <laughs> Windows down, and they see me walk out with this stuff, and they're like, "Yeah!" Yes, yes. And I, we go back. <laughs> to one of my buddy's house, and it was like five of us, and we just rail through this case of Bud Light. And then we go back after that. We walk to the gas station. I put my scrubs back on, and now I'm a drunk doctor. Yeah, <laughs> long, long <laughs> day. <laughs> and the guy asked me, like, what do you do at the hospital? Swear to God. I said, yeah, I'm the head of the pediatric unit. <laughs> I just <laughs> came up with like, it. I, I was just saying stuff on the top of my head. And we go back, drink more, and that was a pattern for until COVID hit, essentially, was I would dress up in scrubs every weekend, and I'd have my guy at the gas station, I asked him what his hours were in a very nonchalant way. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, so, yeah, yeah. when do you work? <laughs> <laughs> and I found out when he worked, so whenever he was working, me and my buddies would go, and I'd dress up in the scrubs. Oh, my God. And go in my dad's closet and take his watch. Oh, that's classic. Because <laughs> in my head, the watch just really sealed oh, the deal. Oh, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> I mean, without it, it was absolutely. nothing. Absolutely. Um, that casco. Put the case up there. It's like, <laughs> like, check that out. <laughs> and so that was just what we did every weekend. It was, we rotate houses. Okay, we went to my house last week. We're going to go to this friend's house next week. And every time I just go buy the booze and the scrubs. And then COVID hits. And at this time, I saved all of my birthday and Christmas money and put it into the stock market. Um, and I got so lucky, invested in pin gaming in the early days before Barstool bought it and made too much money on pin gaming. No way. I, I had way too much money for a 15-year-old. Give me a <laughs> too much amount. Ballpark At its it. peak, I had 18000 in, in my stock market account. <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> Starting from 500 So at this point, I, I both have like, wow, I am a businessman of the world. Mm-hmm. Like I'm yeah, not a bus- doctor. As Jay-Z said, I'm not a businessman. I'm a businessman. Business business man. Man. <laughs> so we go, and I'm on top of the world, and we go, and we're still buying booze and COVID hits. So I just have unlimited funds and a way to get alcohol that is very convenient and easy. All I have to do is change my outfit. Hmm. So for COVID, which is the end of sophomore year, I just go by myself. But this was only every weekend. I'd only drink on the weekends. That was my thing. Mm-hmm. I don't have a problem if I only drink on the weekends. Did you make that like a commitment mm-hmm. to yourself? Yeah, I did. Because okay. um, I remember the first time I drank, I was like, wow, hmm. I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> this this, this, this here's nice. This could be a problem. I was like, wait a second. This is pretty cool. Yeah. And so I'm only drinking on the weekends. I get myself a six-pack of Blue Moons. Sophomore year, which is so bizarre. A couple of lemon slices. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> throw, throw the orange in there. And my sister and I, who was home from college, I would put the blue moon in this big Yeti cup, and I'd just pound these blue moons, and we'd watch Naked and Afraid. And that was, like, our, like, bonding time at night. Um, and that kind of kept going the rest through COVID. Um, and that was just my pattern. I'm going to get scrubs on. I'm going to go buy booze, and I'm going to drink every weekend. And it was all right at the time. <laughs> yeah. Did you stay in the scrubs the whole weekend? 
I would have done. That's what I would have done. So I actually, <laughs> I actually stayed in the scrubs for the parties yeah. because I thought it was really cool. Yeah, I was yeah. like, I it was is like, cool. I was like, look at me yeah. pulling off as the head of pediatrics, right? <laughs> yeah, I was like, Doctor Burleson. Yeah, Doctor Burleson. Doctor Burleson. <laughs> Patrick, I made people call me Doctor Burleson. I'd be <laughs> like, I was like, that's doctor to you, yeah. Yeah. M- MD. If you want one of these blue moons, you gotta call me doctor. Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> and that happens all. That was kind of my COVID pattern, essentially. Um, and the junior here hits. Oh, and I'm selling booze now, too. Oh, yeah. Ooh, yeah, upperclassman. Uh, as yeah. a beer dealer. <laughs> no, I'm selling to my friends in my grade because I'm the only one that can get it with the scrubs. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, you need a 12-pack? All yeah. right, Dr. Burleson will come out and play. Yeah. Yeah. 50 bucks. No, no problem. <laughs> yeah. And so I, that go in the stock market, too. So now I have probably $25,000 in oh, the stock this market is great. with investing and essentially selling alcohol to my friends. Mm-hmm. Junior year comes around, there's a fake ID order. We need to get fake IDs. I was the head of that front. It was me and another buddy. We're like, all right, we're going to get all of our friends fake IDs because drinking in the garage isn't fun anymore. We got to go to bars. We got to go to restaurants. We yeah. got to go have Graduating. some. We got to go to Mar- We got to go get some nice margaritas, the pitchers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we get fake IDs and we get a batch of like 50 kids or of these fake IDs. And we are handing these things out at school. We kind of keep going on this. All the fake IDs happen. My funds from selling alcohol to my buddies are gone because now they all have fake IDs. They can buy it on their own. Mm-hmm. So now I think, okay, I need to gamble because that is my quick, other way of income. Yeah. Quick money. Them stacks yeah. up, boy. And the first bet I got on this random book from some college guy that I somehow knew. And the first bet I ever made was for a hundred dollars, and it was plus four hundred, and it hit. You're you're in. So yeah. Very similar to the first drinking story. Exactly. This is awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but do this I should, ever. I should do this always. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the kryptonite here is I had enough money to do it always right. in this Ugh. weird twisted That's black. That's what you thought. Yeah. yeah <laughs> exactly. In my head, I was like, there is no way I can blow through all the money. Spoiler: I blew through <laughs> every right. single penny. <laughs> And still, my drinking habits, I'd probably have six to eight beers every weekend um, on a Friday and Saturday. But my buddies were doing it for the same, so I thought, whatever. And at this point in my life, I don't think I was trying to escape something. And it wasn't until senior year when I started drinking for another reason, Mm -hmm. and I knew I had another reason. It was not to have the lubricated interaction with the girl you like. It was not to have fun and dance and let your inhibitions down. There was a shift at the end of junior year, specifically that summer, where my buddies would be laughing and dancing, and I would just be drinking to drink. Mm-hmm. Um, still at the parties, I'd only drink on the weekends. I stuck to that rule. Um, but you could tell that I was doing it for another reason. Mm-hmm. And that goes through junior year, that junior, uh, junior to senior year summer. I was probably drinking a little more and drinking with – less intention of drinking. I feel like I was just drinking to drink. Mm-hmm. When that sh- kind of shift happened and you had that realization, was it more difficult for you to not drink during the week? Or were you like longing for the weekend throughout the week? Definitely Monday, Tuesday roll around. I remember it was Tuesday and Wednesday. I'd be like, God, Can't I wish wait. it was Saturday or mm-hmm. Friday. Yeah. Um, but that never happened before. And that was a very scary thought mm-hmm. to have of like, because Sophomore year, I never thought, like, oh, I wish it's Saturday. I would just drink on Saturday because that was the day everyone drank. But it became a shift of it was Tuesday, and I'm not craving the weekend anymore. Every kid in high school craves the weekend. It's the best part of the week. But I wasn't craving the free time. I was craving the ability to drink. But I did stick by my rule and only did it on the weekend. So at this time, my parents noticing I'm a little bit different. I'm changing a little bit. I hop on Wellbutrin. Do not drink on the Wellbutrin is what the doctor tells me. <laughs> okay, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you got Who are you talking to? I'm a doctor. <laughs> I'm a doctor. <laughs> like, have you seen my medical degree? Okay, buddy. I'm not a pediatrics. I think I think I know something about childhood development, pal. <laughs> and so I go on Wellbutrin. So now I'm drinking probably 12, 14 beers, and I'm taking Wellbutrin every morning. And that would make me very tired. Um, the antidepressant, which is what Wellbutrin is, mm-hmm. um, combined with drinking 
made me very, very tired. And it would essentially make me black out a lot faster. Um, so, Is that the first medication that you were on for any type of mental health stuff? Um, in middle school and early high school, I was on Ritalin okay. for ADHD. I don't think I have ADHD, yeah. but I think I was just kind of a spaz of a kid. Um, and that's kind of what they did. Yeah. And they, so I was on that. So I had a bunch of Ritalin, spoiler, mm-hmm. yeah. stored up in the medicine cabinet. That'll come back later. Okay. Yeah. And so I was drinking on the school of and I essentially black out every weekend, even if I wasn't drinking that much. Um, it's actually... So eventually, spoiler, I end up going to residential treatment um, at Hopeway, which is a facility here in Charlotte. And we'll get to that story later. But I learned from a psychiatrist there that when you're drinking that heavily, um, your blackout essentially switch is triggered faster because your brain knows you're going to be drinking. If you're at 8, your brain knows you're going to get to 12 anyway. So you black Mm -hmm. out at 8 instead, Hmm. which I never knew. (laughs) And well, Butrin accelerated that process mm-hmm. essentially and drinking on Wellbutrin this takes me through the end of junior year to senior year summer so this is like August last August it's like not did that did the progression of your drinking have any effect on your academics it did definitely um freshman sophomore year I had all A's um I was a good student I had my planner. I remember I was very pr- proud of my planner. Was it papyrus? Well, like your it was not papyrus. <laughs> you were in medical school. I was in medical school. I had to <laughs> treat these academics seriously. I mean, I had to prove to someone that right. I'm the head of pediatrics. <laughs> and then junior year, my grades just gone. I yeah. had a very heavy. I set myself up essentially for disaster because I took all the hardest classes, mm-hmm. um, and then decided that I shouldn't try for whatever. Yeah. For whatever reason, I think it was came out of perfectionism um, of if I don't try at this, I cannot fail. I essentially mm-hmm. sacrificed how smart I could actually be for how smart I was in my head. Um, and I think I struggled with that for a really long time. Hmm. So, well, Butrin, blacking out. At this time, I've been dating my best friend in the whole wide world for a year and a half. And I break up with her at the end of August um, of last year. And so grades are falling. Right. You quit sports. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Forgot about that. And now you broke up with your best friend. Right. Okay. Seeing a pattern. Yeah. Right. So she's the best girl in the world. I ruined that in the worst way you can possibly imagine. Mm -hmm. And that takes us to Labor Day of last last Labor Day. I remember I went to bed, or I was trying to go to bed, and I stared at the ceiling, and I was trying to, you know how there's little indentations on the ceiling? Um, like in any wall, there's just, you can see sure. the indentations of the paint, essentially. Yeah. I was trying to count each individual dot of paint on this wall in a very specific pattern. I said, I have to do it in 12 in 12 streaks, this is going to make no sense, but that's kind of the beauty of it. Yeah. I have to count it in 12, skip every seven, subtract four from that. And whenever I, number I land on, I have to multiply that by two. And then I go to the grid of the wall and start counting there at whatever number it is. Got it. Did you, just, yeah, did exactly. you just reenact that like off the top of your head, or were those the actual numbers and you remember them now? That was, those were the actual that's numbers. That was, the, that was the pattern. That's what I did for yeah, every yeah. – I mean, I just blank out and do this wild – arithmetic that made zero <laughs> mm-hmm. sense on this grid that I imagined. But it did to head. you. It, I, it made complete sense. It was who I was. It, it was, was my only It was my identity. Sense. Was I have to count or else some disaster will happen mm-hmm. and I am worthless if I do not do this counting. Got it. So I do it all night. From whenever I was trying to hit the hay at around 11, I remember hearing the birds in the morning um, and I'm essentially paralyzed in my bed. I get up, go through my day. I'm gambling a lot at this point. Um, my gambling has progressed past the Thursday night, Sunday night football. <laughs> now I'm on Ukrainian women's tennis <laughs> um, <laughs> at eight in the morning. Well, it's an exciting sport. Yeah, I mean, it's who's oh, the best Ukrainian tennis player? <laughs> <laughs> cannot tell you. <laughs> I mean, I was doing like three on three Russian basketball. Yeah. Like it was. When you're at that point, <laughs> yeah. Here you go. And. 
essentially that pattern stays and I'm speeding while I'm live betting this. I have my live betting website and I'm watching the live stream of this tennis or basketball or whatever and I'm speeding down the road at 90 miles an hour on Providence Road. Yeah. Yeah. And I made extremely regrettable decisions that I won't dive into during that weekend. Um, And I didn't sleep the entire time. That's when the paranoia really set in. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was driving, I'd kind of look over my back shoulder and think someone has to be following me. I remember it was a Dodge Challenger that followed me for like two minutes. And I was like, they're on me. Mm -hmm. They got me. I didn't do the the counting that one night. Mm. This is it. And... And this kind of thinking, this kind of, um, you know, obsessiveness, call it OCD-ish type behavior or thinking, right. started then? This was kind of one of the first bouts with it, that Labor Day? I think it was always there, and I did a great job of ignoring it, essentially. Okay. But this was the first time it came to the surface when I could not ignore yeah, it. Yeah, loud. And it's like, it exactly. It yeah. got so loud that I could not mute it anymore. Okay. Mm-hmm. And... At the end, so this is Labor Day, and we had Monday off. So Monday night, my buddies sit me down. They say, we're coming over. And I'm like, coming over to my house? <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I have to invite you. Yeah. <laughs> so they come over, and we're all sitting by the fire. My best friend in the whole wide world goes, William, you're not yourself. Something, something's wrong. And in my head, I accepted it. Or not in my head. On the outside, I accepted it and was like, all right, thanks, guys. Thanks for looking mm-hmm. out for me. In my head, I'm giving these five guys two middle fingers. Yeah. I'm like, are you kidding me? I know me better than you know me. And for you to pretend that you know Dr. Burleson mm-hmm. better yeah. than he knows himself is a ridiculous statement. Mm-hmm. So I go and I slam my door. I don't sleep that entire night. School on Tuesday morning. And during this time period, this was the first weekend I did not drink. Was Labor Day weekend? I did not drink at Why? all. Why? I don't know. I didn't need to. I already felt on top of the world. Yeah, got it. Um, I felt like my. I think the reason which essentially the intervention didn't work is because I was perfect, right? Yeah, like, you're, yeah, you're feeling it. You I was knew it was it. coming. Yeah. <laughs> and so I go to school without having slept in seventy-two hours plus. And on the way to school, I pull over three or four times, making sure people aren't following me. Mm. And during first period after Labor Day, my feet are on fire. I'm wearing these tight tennis shoes, and my feet are on fire. They feel like they're in a prison, and they cannot get out, and my feet need to escape this constraint. (laughs) I know. (laughs) (laughs) So I go through the day. I've been told now that apparently I just looked like a zombie for most of the fall um, of this year. And I go through the day, and I don't pay attention in class. I'm gambling in class. I am doing everything wrong, essentially. So I go home, go in my closet, and find these pair of slippers. So I put on the slippers and decide I'm never wearing shoelaces again. I can't. It's impossible. My feet will feel like they're on fire again. It would be impossible for me to function and walk with laces around my shoes ever. <laughs> so I throw on these slippers. And then I made this huge joke about it at school. I'm like, every day is pajama day. <laughs> but in my head, there was this mental torment of if I wear laces, I will die. Yeah. It was the same essentially feeling of that I need to count. Mm-hmm. It was the same feeling mm-hmm. of I cannot wear laces. So the slippers are essentially part of my personality at this point. Um, I'm still gambling. I'm still back to drinking. I'm drinking way more on the weekends. Um, Still essentially blacking out every weekend, and I'm still taking this Wellbutrin. Um, I'm skipping it if I want to. Some mornings I don't take it. Some morning I take two to counteract the me not taking it the day before. Mm. Don't do that. Dr. Burleson. I mean, I mean, (laughs) no prescriptions. Who knows better? So I have these slippers. I have this paranoia. At this point, okay, I need something to take the edge off. I need something to chill me out in the morning. So I go and I buy five packs of cigarettes. I remember I thought it was interesting how I would imagine the first time someone smokes a cigarette, it is someone has one and they're offered one and they they smoke one and then go and buy their own pack. But I had never had a cigarette before. And I was like, I'm going to go punch five <laughs> all in. American spirit. Like your betting habits. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> all in. All in. I'm going to go five American spirit black 
package, and I'm going to cut the filters off because that there makes sense. God. There you yeah. go. Yeah. It was heavy. So now I'm smoking these on the way to school. I remember I could get, on a good day, I could get three cigarettes in. Good being relative here. <laughs> I get three cigarettes in, and then I'd roll the windows down. And at this point, it's winter. So I'm like shivering, and my bones hurt, and everything hurts. And I'm on the side of the road watching these Dodge Challengers go by. And at this point, all of the cars were Dodge Challengers, which oh was terrifying. God. Like they were all this essentially what felt like a secret agency yeah. coming after yeah. me. Yeah, all black. Be- very real, very <laughs> real. Um, around this time, I wrote my first suicide note. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes out of, there is no possible way I could live like this. Mm. Um, I didn't want to hurt myself. I didn't want to hurt anyone else. I just really wanted to stop hurting. Yeah. Um, I wrote the suicide note. And I decided. have these twin sisters, Cohen and Emily, best part of my entire life. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I put the note in my bedside table. Go to bed keep doing slippers. I have intramural basketball games at this point every Wednesday when they forced me to wear basketball shoes. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd be in my car and these games were every Wednesday night and it was 7 p.m. on Wednesdays. And I'd get there at 6 6 p.m. before the game and I'd have to listen to spa music and try to convince myself that I should wear these basketball shoes. Mm -hmm. And I'd keep my slippers on until about 6.58 and then I'd do one last burst of emotion of whatever I could do left and I put on the basketball shoes and before I could even have them in my car I would sprint and go to the jump ball like I'd run in as the buzzer was about to go and I'd play our team won the intramural championship by the way of course it did (laughs) and I go and the game's over and I run back into my car and when no one can see me I throw off my shoes and toss them in the trunk I don't even want to see these things Hmm. I want to pretend that laces do not exist and that keeps going for a few weeks. It was just this pattern of drink on the weekends, avoid the laces, smoke your cigarettes with no filters on them. Your boys did, some, I mean, call it an intervention, but a sit right. down and, and try to help you become a little more aware that mm-hmm. you, this behavior is, right. is looking a little odd. Yeah. Um, and so it continued, right? Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. It, it, did Got your worse. buddies just continue to kind of show concern or did they just kind of say, what do we do about this? Or what was it like? So my friends never gave up on me. Mm-hmm. However, there was a certain point where it was definitely out of their control. And mm-hmm. I think one of, one of my best buddies said, we want to help you, but you really have to help yourself. Yeah. And I didn't want to help myself. So they were still voicing concern. Um, I would go to parties and drink too much and pass out yeah. on the bathroom mm-hmm. floor. Um, and, you know, my buddies were the one who would carry me home. They give, me, were give me, like, a time frame reference here in terms of kind of the first time that, that you know, you really started having these kind of obsessive mm-hmm. thoughts to where we're at right now in the story about, like, you, you right. know, doing the jump ball. Did this happen in, like, is this, like, a month period of time, or is this, like, six months? So this would be Labor Day to... October, November. So, so it's a couple months. First yeah. semester, yeah. senior year. So this is like quick. I mean, this is like a, yeah. Okay. This is quick. This is downward spiraling, yeah. essentially what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this pattern repeats itself. And then late November, I write my second suicide note. And this is the one, right? I'm like, okay, this is the one that I'm actually going to act on. This yeah. is going to be the note that people read and get all sad about. Obviously, wasn't thinking like that. Um but I was in the middle of it, and this is very sad. I was in the middle of writing a little note to my mom in it, and the pen ran out of ink. The Sharpie that I've had forever, it was a new Sharpie, and it stopped writing. <laughs> and I remember I was pissed. I was like, got to go get a new Sharpie. And I stopped myself. Well, that's got to mean something. Yeah. <laughs> the pen runs out of ink. Whatever you believe in, that means something. So I decided to go to bed and try to fight on. Um, Wow. Hey, so the suicide notes, I mean, obviously that implies some, right. Some, you know, depressive kind of thinking, Definitely. you know, the way that you were describing it before it's, it's, there's some obsessive, there's some OCD, there's drinking, there's passing out, but obviously you're not very happy about Mm -hmm. this. Right. Can you shed a little light on that? So it was this pattern of, I'd have about 
four or five days every month or so where I wouldn't sleep and I'd be on top of the world and I did not want to kill myself at all. I thought, I'm going to change the world. Mm -hmm. I, I have this whole thing figured out. And then it would crash and I'd go through these depressive states and this is where the suicide notes would come gotcha. or when I was not in this hyper sense. Um, How long would the depressive states last? <clears throat> two, three weeks. Um, really? And I started craving this these highs, right? Um, mm -hmm. The I would stop taking my Wellbutrin because I figured if I go off that, maybe it'll spark this other energy that I have. Mm -hmm. um, maybe the Wellbutrin is keeping me from being happy. Mm -hmm. That's where my rationale was at the time. Dr. Burleson. I, I mean, I got, I got this, guys. <laughs> like, and so this goes, and I'm just trudging through school like in a negative way. I yeah. get up, smoke my cigs, I go to school, I don't really talk to anybody, except at lunch I act totally normal because I'm worried that people are going to be concerned. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm terrified that more people are going to think something's wrong because right now it's only my close friends, and we can deal with keeping them trying to manage that. But if other people find out that I'm struggling, then it's going to get real bad. In my head, I didn't want to be found out. It was almost mm -hmm. like I didn't want to be exposed for being suicidal. Mm. Um, so I'd put on the charm, I'd act nice, I'd be friendly. And then during class, class I'd count the wall. I'd look out the window, I'd try to count the leaves with the same pattern. Um, and eventually, I just could not do it anymore. I remember, so this takes us to a Friday night party. Um, I invited a ton of girls to this party um, that they all think they're like talking to me, which they were, but they didn't know about each other. Um, I was craving disaster is what I was doing. Mm. I didn't care where I got action um, in a very like something happening happening to me. It didn't have to be negative. It didn't mm -hmm. have to be positive. I, it was almost like an attention thing, and I didn't, I didn't care if it was negative, right? Yeah. So I created this hellfire, essentially. And that night, and they, I'm getting yelled at, and it's this huge thing. Um, and I get a ride home. And for a school project, I was doing a project on Cobain, which kind of makes sense. Yeah. And I had Cobain's suicide note printed out for this school project. And this twisted way, I was reading it, and I had had a few beers that night. And I was reading it, and I thought, what if mine... If he did it, maybe I can do it. Like, that was my rationale. It was like, if he did it, then I can do it. So I go out. I get a new Sharpie. This is around midnight of December 12th. And I go out. I get a Sharpie. I draft this note. I forgot a crucial part of the story. A week before that, I knew I was going to die in that week time frame, from the December 12th to whatever, that week. And the week before I went out, it was very premeditated. And I went on the highway, and I was scouting out pillars to crash into. Mm. What would be a pillar that people would find me, but no one that I would see? Because I don't want anyone that I knew to find me. Mm -hmm. Like, that was my nightmare of, like, what if someone that loves me and cares for me finds me? That was my worst nightmare. Oh. So I thought I need to get a certain distance away from Charlotte to crash my car into a pillar. And mm -hmm. I found a pillar. And I knew that was the one. And I drove past it a few times. I was doing violent U-turns trying to see this pillar. Something about seeing it, it was like seeing my death. Mm -hmm. And it was very comforting. And a, Frederick Nietzsche said, suicide is a great means. It gets many through a dark night. And it was this thing. Suicide was essentially my only reason for living because I had a cop out at all times, right? Mm -hmm. I don't have to worry about school. I don't have to worry about drinking too much. I don't have to worry about hurting anybody because i'm gonna die i'm gonna die who cares whatever i do yeah. suicide essentially gave me an excuse to do whatever i wanted and i would drive past the pillar and just see my own death and it was very comforting in a very terrifying way <sighs> like finally i have my escape ticket finally i can die so i have my pillar planned out and a week later i just decide okay this is the night after this party everything destructed this should be the night i do it i know i'm gonna do it eventually in the next week and i go and we had an alarm system, so I knew the way of the house. I finished this note, which I still have, and I'm going to jump out the window, essentially. And I'm on the second floor. I'm going to break my legs, but I don't care. I mean, I'm going to die anyway, right? And I open the window, and the December 12th breeze comes in the room. 
take a few deep breaths, and I see the damn slippers. And the slippers are in my closet, and I just toss them off coming over from the party because, of course, I wore the slippers to the party. Yeah, yeah. And I see the slippers, and this thing that embodies essentially all of my problems were these slippers because the laces were one of the first signs of mm -hmm. essentially my downward spiral. Mm. And I saw the slippers, and I wish there was some shining beam, beam of light or something to tell me to live, but there wasn't, except the damn slippers. <laughs> so I take the slippers, and without really thinking, I put them on, and I go to the window, I open it up a little bit more, and I turn around. And I took a few strides to my parents' room, and I open the door, and they're asleep. And I go, Mom, Dad, I go, what's wrong? What's wrong? This is like a kid had a bad dream. Like They yeah. think this is what it is. I'll never forget it. I want nothing more than to kill myself, is what I said. And that's all I craved, essentially. And my dad and my mom ran up and they hugged me and said, it's going to be okay, it's going to get help. And something to note here was there was no way on earth I would have asked for help if it was not for my mom. My mom made an environment where it was okay to ask for help always. Um, and later, that I've dealt through it now, but I almost had some guilt. Why did I ask for help sooner? I could have gotten this fixed before <laughs> right. I was about to jump out the window. Well, um, took what it took. But my mom cultivated an environment where it was truly okay, welcoming, and encouraged to ask for help if you're struggling. Huge. Huge. Such a blessing. Best mom in the world. And so she hugs me. I, we go in my dad's office, and they call a friend who knows about this stuff. Um, and I'm begging at this point. I'm crying on my mom's lap. Um, Mom, I want to die. Mom, I want to die. Mom, I want to die. I'm begging her to make it stop. I was essentially hearing voices at this time telling me I need yeah. to die. Um, then the I need to die rhetoric changed from get me help, get me help, get me help. And I don't know where it changed in my brain, but eventually I stopped begging to die and started begging for help. Hmm. Um, and I think choosing the slippers was the first hint of that of maybe there's a part of me that wants to live, and there's a part of me down here somewhere that wants to survive. It's probably your mom. It was my mom. <laughs> yeah. And they take me to the emergency room. Um, I remember my dad's seat warmer um, was, it was broken, so it got too hot, the <laughs> seat warmer did. So I maxed the voltage on the seat warmer and let it essentially burn my back on the way to the ER, because if I could feel the pain, I could still be connected to this mm -hmm. reality. Keep you alive. Right. Mm -hmm. So I go to the ER, and I walk through the metal detectors, and the ER is very heavily guarded, which is really interesting, something I never expected. There are cops everywhere. Yeah. And I walk through, and right behind me comes a guy who's missing a thumb. And I look back, and I'm like, why the hell am I here? It doesn't make sense to me. This guy's missing a thumb, and I'm walking through the same door he did. And I go, and my dad's doing all that. My dad took me to the ER, and my dad's doing all the talking. I don't really remember what he said, but eventually I'm ushered over to this vitals machine. I'll never forget. The, they strap the strap on my arm and the thing on my finger, and they go, amazing vitals. And I remember being like, are you kidding me? <laughs> amazing vitals? You no, know I want to <laughs> die. I was like, do you know I want to die? And I remember being annoyed with the nurse saying I had perfect vitals. And I get ushered back to this new waiting room. On the other side, my personality liked being, oh, I have perfect vitals. Yeah, I do. <laughs> you're, you're looking at the intramural basketball champion. Yeah. Like, it's like, oh, all right, all right. And so they ask me, do you, smoke, do you smoke at all? Like, do you need nicotine while you're here? And I'm like, no, I have perfect vitals. <laughs> I'm smoking a pack a day at this point. Like, yeah. I... But I refused to admit that to myself because mm -hmm. it felt like the part of me that wanted to kill himself was the same part of me that smoked cigarettes. Yeah. And the part of me that was speaking then was not that part of me. Yeah. So, no, I'm not that guy. I don't smoke cigarettes because mm -hmm. I was at that point I wanted to live at least a little bit. Yep. And that fluctuated at the time. <laughs> um, sometimes I want to live. Sometimes I want to die. I had thoughts of breaking out of the ER. And I remember being mad there was so much security. I was like, you should be able to leave this place if you really want to. But I couldn't. And... We go, and I'm in trauma station one, they put me, um, and they give me these dark green scrubs. Where, what ER were you at? Were you at Atrium downtown? Yeah, it was where I was born. Um, mm -hmm. And we go, and 
this man gives me a pair of green scrubs, dark green scrubs. <laughs> and I go in the bathroom, and there was glass, and there was a mirror in the bathroom, and I thought about shattering it and doing something with these shards of glass, and it was a shatterproof mirror. I was very upset that it was impossible for me to hurt myself, and that was the point of this whole process. Once yeah. you ask for help, it will become very quickly impossible to hurt yourself. Um, and as scary as some of this process was, it limited me from doing any harm to myself. Crucial. Yeah. Um, and I go and I change in these dark green, green scrubs, and I come out, and all the doctors are kind of looking at me. And what I found out later was the dark green scrubs are reserved for the psychiatric patients. So now I have these dark green scrubs on, and I get to keep my slippers because they looked at my shoes and said, oh, you don't have laces because you can't have laces in yeah. these types of places because yeah, you hurt yourself with the laces. Um, side note, it's interesting to me, every rule that I share of you can't have laces, it's a shatterproof mirror, all this stuff that's going to come, there's a story behind that. They had to make that rule for someone. Right, um, somebody. Which I, which I think is a really powerful thing to think about. Yeah. And I go back to my chair, and the psychiatrist is on a Zoom call. And I totally, he goes, he goes, hi, what's your name? I give him a little rundown, and I tell him what's going on, and I mitigate it tremendously i've been a little sad lately mm -hmm. he's yeah. like why are you in the green scrubs then buddy like a little sad people are not in the green I'm scrubs. just trying to buy some beer man <laughs> yeah. Leave me alone. Uh, i was like choose the wrong color <laughs> and the i remember he said i don't want to do it i don't want to do it i don't want to do it that's what the doctor was saying and he finally said but i have to have to do what we have to send you somewhere involuntarily so at this point, once he said the word involuntar involuntarily, that it's out of my hands. I can now not leave if I want to. Yeah. He tells me the car ride to, um, which now I'm learning, I'm going to Davidson Behavioral Center, um, is going to be here in two nights, and you're going to spend the night in the ER um, until then, until the driver comes to pick you up. And essentially, I'm in the ER. I am tracked on my fantasy football team it's about to be the playoffs <laughs> so interesting how the suicidal brain can prioritize things that at its base are very artificial but in my brain this fantasy football to win the little jackpot of the winner was like the biggest deal it was like if i don't do anything with this life i gotta win fantasy football it was all i had left mm. it's addiction baby it was all i had left and watching the football the whole time in the ER and at some point my mind sh my mindset shifts back to okay I want to die I don't like this the ER is not fun obviously mm -hmm. so now I'm back to this essentially suicidal brain and at this point my, I think my dad can tell because you can tell he's grateful that I'm going to Davidson Behavioral Center mm -hmm. right he's like that doctor as much as he didn't want to made the right decision that was a crucial it was moment. vital vital and it's and he made, and he made that yeah. and he made that call have you been in touch with him do you remember on the doctor on the zoom yeah. no it was a five minute call and then yeah. i mean he looked like he had the slick back hair and a beard and glasses and he looked like he'd seen a thousand patients that night i mean oh, it was, we did it was 3 a.m at that point yeah um so i spend the rest of the time in the er i don't eat a thing um and eventually the driver comes and the nurse takes my vitals one last time, and she says again, oh, good, good, good. Again, this whole thing, I wrote this, I wish there was a mental vital machine, right? Because my numbers would break the right. damn machine. <laughs> they weren't so good. But they, yeah. Yeah. And I go to this driver, and we go down in this SUV. And before, there's this waiting station, and I find out I'm not going to be the only one in this car. It's going to be me um, and another patient. And we'll name him Johnny for all yeah, intents and purposes. Your new best friend. My new homie. Yeah. And Johnny's this old man, and he's very scrawny, and he's sitting, and he's just staring at the wall. And for the first time, I mean, it was a very textbook picture of the guy in the dark green scrubs staring, drooling at the wall. Like, to be blunt, that's what it was. Mm -hmm. And if you ask me a few years ago if I saw that it might have freaked me out a little bit it would freak out some people mm -hmm. like to see people like the psych ward vibe is not a little scary yeah and I saw him and I remember my shoulders dropped finally someone else is looking at the wall I was like me and Johnny my people like I was like me and Johnny 
are the like finally someone else is doing Somebody what I'm doing. It. Like Johnny's counting the wall the same way mm-hmm. I am, and that relieved this weird pressure. Which comes back as the story will progress is the patience. As amazing as my therapists and doctors were, it was the patience that taught me the most throughout this whole process. Hmm. And that was the first idea of that was Johnny staring at the wall. And I remember my dad was like. You know when you're walking on the street and you maybe see a homeless person and when you're a little kid you might stare um, and your dad's like, don't stare at that guy. Yeah. Yeah. I think my dad was trying to message that to me, like, don't stare at this guy. And I was like, (laughs) Dad. No, no, no. I was like, like, Dad, this is the one person I could relate to in the past few months. Yep. And we get in the car and there's blaring R&B music. Like, this driver has, like, disco funk, like, (laughs) in the car. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, what is going on? And there's this huge plexiglass divider in between um, me and Johnny. And there's plastic seats. And I forgot to buckle my seatbelt because there, the past few months, I never buckled my seatbelt. I managed to turn off the sensor in my car that does the ding, 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 if you don't. Yeah, how did you do that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I managed to turn it off because I was crossing my fingers. Maybe I'd get hit by a semi truck and my death could at least look accidental. Oh, God. And I forgot to buckle my seatbelt and the driver whips around and it's like, buckle your seatbelt. And I, it felt weird. I remember to buckle my seatbelt. I was like, are we taking safety precautions now mm-hmm. in vehicles? When my whole suicide plan was to run into something. Mm-hmm. So we go and about in the middle of the car ride, the driver goes, all right, we need to get gas. <laughs> oh, God. Which is really a punchline if you think about it. And telling the story, it has to be, <laughs> the points of it have to be funny because it's the only way to digest the of course. intense parts of it. Of course. And and just we joke and we yeah, laugh yes, on please here. Do. And, yes. and that is no way us being insensitive. Well, obviously, him stopping for gas is hilarious. <laughs> like, right. The transport vehicle to the psych yeah. ward should be yeah. fully gassed up and ready to go. <laughs> yeah, about a little preparation. Are you pal. kidding? Like, I was like, you have to stop for gas? And my dad is falling behind us at this point. Oh, God, I bet he was freaking out. And this driver drove very fast. Like, very fast. I was like, what is he yeah. doing? And he stops for gas. And I remember my dad was behind us, like, as he was getting gas. And my dad's car shifted into a Dodge Challenger. Oh, God. Yeah. Interesting. He's back. I look in the mirror. I'm like, oh, my God. They're back. They're going to get me before I get to the safe place. And at that point of sheer panic in this, I'm getting gas on the way to the psych ward, Johnny, who's been singing to the R&B music the whole time. um, Big fan. This wasn't his first rodeo. Big fan, Johnny. (laughs) Funny you say that. Yeah. This it uh, was not Johnny's first yeah. rodeo, and you find out later why. All right. And Johnny, who's been singing and dancing and bashing his head actually against the plexiglass, as soon as the driver gets out of the vehicle, he stops, and he sits still. And he puts his palm, and it was a palm of, like, a true working man, you know? Mm-hmm. It had, had like, And he put his palm up against the glass and said, William, pray with me. And Johnny said a prayer. In the December 12th night, as we were getting gas on the way to Davidson Behavioral Center, and one of the lines he said, he goes, let God guide Will and I to salvation. Wow, Johnny. And the driver gets back in the car, turns on the music. Johnny goes back to his regularly scheduled behavior. (laughs) And we go to the psych ward. And so this building... It was at night. This was very late at night. And it looks like a haunted house at night. Like a psych ward. Preface, it does not in daylight. It looks like a Hampton Inn in daylight. (laughs) But it looks like Dracula's castle at night. (laughs) So you have this like poorly lit sign that's like Davidson Behavioral Center (laughs) with lights coming. (laughs) Flickering. I was like, I probably imagined some cobwebs on it too. It's like a litter out. Yeah. I was like, yes. (laughs) And we go and the front entrance is this very intricate, nice portico chair. Um, okay, I'll go to the pork chair. <laughs> We're driving on this road, and there's pine trees everywhere, and I'm looking at the pine trees for whatever reason. It's the only way I can distract myself from what the hell is actually going on. And we're driving down this road, and right when we're about to get to the pork chair, we veer off to the side road. And Johnny hits his head Uh-oh. on the thing again. 
And in the distance down the road, I see this garage door opening. Very, like, imagine a creepy garage door <laughs> opening. That's what, what, what it was. And this fluorescent, this doesn't make any sense, but a very clinical light, that, like, white light mm-hmm. of, the, yeah. of the dentist office. So mm-hmm. healing. Yes, very healing. It's very comforting. <laughs> it's shining into the December, the December 12th night sky. Mm-hmm. And we pull in this thing. And the first guy I see, he was in a hazmat suit. COVID precaution. Mm. And this guy had a full, it was just from the waist up, but he had this huge gear of this hazmat suit. And he opens my car door and asks for my name. I tell him, Johnny, good to see you again. Mm. He said that. <laughs> and he goes, all right, Burleson to 2000, Johnny to 3000. Um, talking about floors, and an army of nurses walks us through this hallway that's lined with decorative art, all the good stuff, and we go up the elevator. And I remember in the elevator, it was Johnny and I and a few nurses, please let this crash into the ground. If there's one time an elevator crashes in the ground, it is now. It's my last chance. Yeah, I want it to go through the first floor. I want it to go through the dungeon. I want want it to go through everything and hit the ground and have this flame of salvation. Because in my mind, that's what Johnny was talking about. In this weird way, I thought salvation meant death. Mm-hmm. Now I know that's not what he meant. And we go, and I eventually find my room, room 219. And at this point, I'm saying to Hazmat, which is what I call him, where's my dad? Where's my dad? When do I get to see my dad? This guy, Hazmat, just puts me off. And it's like, like, I'm your dad now. <laughs> <laughs> Hazmat's like, don't worry about that. You're looking at him. <laughs> So Hazmat's like, talk to your hall nurse about it. Talk to your hall nurse about it. And at some point, as I was walking to my room, I realized I'm not seeing my dad for a little bit. Yeah. And I go in my room, and there's a, pan, there's a pair of tan scrubs, um, like the crust of a peanut butter jelly and sandwich. That's mm. why I remember looking at them. It was that color. And I put them on. They were baggy and thin, and they were very uncomfortable. Um, and I had a little basket of toiletries in room 219. Um, and it was a... There was a steel bed that was bolted to the floor, and there was a steel desk that was bolted to the floor, and I had a little chair. And I go, and I start examining my Christmas presents of my toiletries. Mm-hmm. The first thing I see was a toothbrush, and it was about two inches, and it had a rounded handle, and it was the size of your pinky, and that was the toothbrush. And I remember thinking, as I said, there's a rule for that toothbrush. Yeah. Like, there's a reason. Like, there's a reason for that toothbrush. And at that point, I felt very defeated. I thought, if they thought of the damn toothbrush, they have thought of everything. Mm-hmm. Like, if they're going down to that means of making the patient safe, then there's no way I can hurt myself. And there truly was not. And at that time, that was a terrifying thought. Of I literally cannot hurt myself in here, which was the point of the whole thing. So my suicidal ideation kind of takes a break because I realize it's impossible. But it transforms itself into, okay, I'm going to die as soon as I get out of here, Mm -hmm. as soon as I find a way out. But here I'm safe, and I know that, and it's a difficult thing to digest, but you are safe in these types of places. And I go, and I look in the mirror, shatterproof mirror. I remember seeing that. I was also upset. I look at myself. I looked in my eyes. I had these bags under my eyes, and I just start crying. And it wasn't like a Will Ferrell funny cry in a movie. This is like a real cry and I get on the bathroom floor and I sob for about 10 minutes in Davidson Behavioral Center in room 219. I'm on the ground and I'm, it was a silent cry, one of those, you know, when mm-hmm. you, you don't even have enough emotion to produce sounds. Mm-hmm. That's how empty I was. I thought, okay, okay. The nurse comes to my door to check on me. He goes, okay, let's go find you something. Let's go to the common room. So the common room is a bunch of steel essentially metal chairs, and there's a TV in the common room. You're like, okay, we're going to watch TV right now. I did not want to watch TV. It was Justin Fields, his rookie debut. No one wants to watch that, <laughs> even when you're in Davidson. Especially Davidson. when you can't bet on it. Yeah, I couldn't be- well, Another thing, yeah. watching sports when you don't have action, once you've been betting every <laughs> single sports game boring. I've watched, I was like, why, what? Why yeah. do I care about yeah. how far this dude can throw the ball? So what, he can scramble. <laughs> and so I go... To this, I go to get water, which is this big steel machine with a little button. And to the left of that is a bookshelf. And on top of the bookshelf 
way out of a movie. It's like all, the dust-ridden pages mm-hmm. or the the secret book. This, this, one of these. Yeah. It was like this. <laughs> it was like the secret book that was like, what's that? And it caught my eye. So I like reach up my arms, and get it. And there were other patients in there. Back two seconds. Mm-hmm. When I walked in, there was an older patient in a wheelchair. Um, and she said, welcome to the house of pain. Mm. Okay. It's comforting. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. <laughs> it's like tip of the cap. <laughs> and I go and I grab this book, and it's Lonesome Dove by Larry McCurdy. Big book, about 1,000 pages. And I go back to my room. I'm holding this like it's everything I have left. I don't even know what it is. I don't even have time to read the back cover. I just knew this was this was something it was special. It was special, and it was. <laughs> and I go back to my room and I read this book, essentially the rest of the night, until I have my meeting with the psychiatrist at Davidson Behavioral Center, who's trying to figure out what's going on. And this is the morning. I skip breakfast. Um, I didn't want to go to breakfast, and eventually I have my meeting around probably 10 a.m. Um, but you I up the whole night. Yeah. yeah. But you get your vitals taken at 6.30. Um, <laughs> yeah. Your beautiful vitals. Yeah. And so I hear this vital screaming, and it interrupts my reading, and I remember being rather mad. Like, What's the deal, guys? So I get my vitals taken, and the girl behind me has this bright blue hair. Um, and she has – this is dark. But she has cuts all up and down her arms and down her legs. Um, she has tattoos trying to cover up the scars, but she never could. And we'll call her Blue. That's what I call her in the story. Um, and I realized she was the room next to me when we went back to our um, rooms after we got our vitals. And that night I heard someone crying the whole night as I was reading. And I realized it was Blue crying the whole night. And she comes up later. But I go and I have my meeting with a psychiatrist and... I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be here. This I should not be here. I wanted to escape so I could die, essentially. Um, and I was very convincing in the fact that I was fine. I put on an act like yeah. this was a huge misunderstanding, and she bought it. She really did, to an extent. And so I'm essentially reading Lonesome Dove all day, every night. I go to one lunch. Um, I go to outside time where I talk with Blue. I wrote about that in semicolon a little bit. But eventually on about the second day or the third day, I receive a call from my mom because there's these pay phones. Um, and I call my mom and she goes, okay, there's this place called Hopeway in Charlotte. It's a residential mental health facility. Um, I think you're going to go there. How long? It's going to be like a few days at Hopeway. She goes, well, I think I'm going to be there for about 30 days, and then we can decide after that. I can't die for 30 days was my initial thought. Was So I had to stick around for 30 more days. I was upset that it was going to take this long for me to get out because I was still in a very suicidal mm-hmm. state at this point. Previously, you had you'd shifted from mm-hmm. I want to die to I want help. Were, mm-hmm. you, were you getting still little, little pops of I want help? When I talked to my mom, <laughs> I would yeah. be – I would be like, okay, I can do it. I can safe. do it. I'm okay. Yeah. I'm safe with my mom. I can live for her. I'm not going to live for myself, but I can yeah. live for her. Okay. And I go leave Davidson Behavioral Center. I have a night at home where I have to be closely monitored by my parents and I'm because I have to get a COVID test before Hopeway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> so I have a night at home, and I'm on the porch with my dad. Um, and we smoke cigars because I had had nicotine. <laughs> My dad didn't know I was smoking at all, but I was like, "Want to have one of those cigars?" <laughs> and we had cigars on the porch. And I went to bed, and my dad slept on my floor to make sure I was safe the whole night. Um, I never tried to unlock the window, but I'm fairly certain the windows and everything were bolted shut. Sure. Um, and the next morning, we say our goodbyes, and I'm off to Hopeway. And my first day at Hopeway, I go there, and I get showed my room. I'll fast forward a little bit, and I'm in the shower, 
and that was the first time I really tried to convince myself that I should live for myself, not for someone else. I need to live for myself. Okay, what's a number that I can live to that's at least given it a shot? Okay, 25. I'm going to live to 25. At least I'm going to live to 25. I can get there. A few weeks later after treatment, okay, I can get to 35. I can get to 35. I said a few weeks, I'm in a few days. A few days later, it's 40. I can live to 40. So on and so forth. By the end, I'm saying, all right, I'm going to live to 110. Yeah, I'm going to live to 110. <laughs> and I'm not only going to survive until 110, I'm going to live until 110. And that whole progression at Hopeway, um, which really came from other patients. Um, my first day there, I was very nervous. It felt like I was a new kid at school. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy who was sitting alone. We all sat outside because the weather was fine at that point. It was a little chilly. But he was sitting alone at the picnic table and I was walking out like shaking my hands with my tray and come over here, buddy, come over here, buddy. All right. I sit down and we have this conversation. Eventually it lands on the point of, he asked me, so why are you here? I was like, Whoa, dude. Good old old rehab question. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, what you in for? Yeah. yeah, I was like, Whoa, there has to be some like, you don't get to ask me that yet. We got to be friends before you ask me that. Why are you in? (laughs) So I tell him like, yeah, I've been, like, very suicidal. I was in the psych ward before this. Um, naturally, I'm like, so what about you? And he goes, crystal math, 20 years. Hmm. And in my environment, I've been taught to be afraid of people like that. Like, to group them all together is kind of what you do in your mind when you've never seen someone life affected by drugs. You group them together, and you think they're all bad, right? Hmm. And this guy just waved me over, and he taught me more than anybody. Is We'll call him... Max. Max taught me more than anybody about life, and he was really the one who convinced me to live um, and told me that I could turn it around. Um, And I'm still in touch with him. He's doing well. And we had lunch together every day. Um, At this point, I got my bipolar diagnosis. um, Uh Aha. There it is. (laughs) Yeah, there's Um, the big reveal. So looking back to those speeding, gambling, Thinking you're on top of the world, those would be the manic tendencies. Sure. Um, depressed would be the depressive tendencies when you want to die. Yeah. Um, and for the first few days at Hopeway, about three days after there, I was still depressed. And then about the fourth day, something shifted. I had all this energy. And I decided, whew, <laughs> I feel pretty good. And I didn't sleep the whole time at Hopeway, or for those four days at Hopeway. And then I came all crashing down. And I was a star in therapy. I shared everything because I knew I could get better. And I knew I was on top of the world. And then the depression hit again. Um, and I'm very grateful that I had both stages. Thank of, yeah, like, that's what I was going to say. Thank yeah. God you cycled so quickly yeah. so they could see mm-hmm. it. It was a blessing that my brain sh- showcased both of its yeah. Yeah. Huge. environments at that same time period. Um, had great therapy. Had great psychiatrists there. Um, like I said, again, most of the stuff I learned was from the patients. Um, and it's difficult to tell stories about the patients without revealing mm-hmm. everything about the patients in a meaningful way. Um, but after 30, I think it was 30 days on the dot at Hopeway, I left. And being in a mental hospital in Christmas is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, my family stood through the glass door, and I waved at my twin sister's. Um, and they were screaming, Merry Christmas, and I could barely hear their faint little high voices <laughs> through the glass. God. I thought, this is just out of a movie. <laughs> like, I was like, and everyone was crying, but pretending they weren't crying. Um, mm-hmm. And I got out, and a week later, I went back to high school. In between Hopeway and Davidson Behavioral Center, that one night I was home when I got my COVID test. Sorry, I'm going back. No, 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 no. All good. In between that, we were pulling up the driveway. This is the part I cry. <laughs> Don't worry. I've already cried twice. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> and we pull up our driveway, which is really steep. And I'm showing my mom all my favorite songs. Because it's interesting. The suicidal brain still has a base level of interest. And for me, it was music. Um, and I was showing my mom my favorite song, Cyclones by Sticky Fingers, if you want to listen at oh. home. Um, that's the song I showed her. And at the, end of the, at the end of the song, he goes, Cyclones, and it closes out. And I hadn't cried in months. 
I just did yeah. not cry. It became incapable for me to cry. I could not show emotion because I was so numb to the fact that I even existed. And I look at her, I go, Mom, I need to help people. This has to mean something. This was before I was at Hopeway. Hmm. And that was the part of me that knew that I was going to live past December and past all the months after that. And yes, I battled through both sides at Hopeway. Sure. But having that spark of helping people then before I went to Hopeway is really what led me through the whole time. And she looked at me and started crying and said, you will, baby, you will. (laughs) And that was kind of the moment I knew that I was going to stick around. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.